Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. We're only through the first couple of weeks of the 2021 Atlantic hurricane season, and we've already had a named storm, a tropical depression, and now we're eyeing the Gulf of Mexico for development heading into the weekend. Tropical cyclone forecasting has come a long way in recent decades, and there are even long-range signals we can monitor well ahead of time that show us where tropical activity could pick up. Today's guest is Weather Channel expert, Dr. Greg Postel, who is well-versed in medium and long-range forecasting, as well as tropical cyclones. Our discussion will highlight what these signals are and how we can leverage them to alert local residents before a storm arrives. Dr. Postel, thank you for joining us again thank you. on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me, Marshall. I really now, appreciate it. Now, now this, is, this is the beauty of the podcast. We're doing this one in real time because we're monitoring... Uh, an event. We're going to drop this podcast today because there's something in the Gulf of Mexico brewing. Give us the latest on what you're seeing there. Yeah, there is. It's a sort of slowly developing area of low pressure in the southern Gulf of Mexico, Bay of Campeche, and that is likely to move northward, probably um, across the northern Gulf coasts, maybe Saturday, as early as Saturday. So in just a few days time, it's going to get its act together. We don't know exactly how strong it's going to get. There are lots of factors that are in play for that. But more than anything else, heavy rain, heads up. It's coming for parts of Texas and Louisiana, most likely. And I did see that. I saw some discussion on social media and one person was like, man, this is not, you know, actually he was a meteorologist uh, colleague. He's like, man, this is not a big deal. But then another colleague responded, well, it is a big deal if, you know, a foot of rain falls in parts of Louisiana, Texas. Are we dealing with that scale of a rainfall event? Perhaps, depending on how quickly it moves. The atmosphere is going to be plenty moist. So there's going to be a lot of efficient rainmakers out there. But, you know, the other thing about it is, is that this is going to be moving inland and continue on its merry way. So eventually parts of the Southeast will get a lot of heavy rain, maybe even here in Atlanta, Georgia as well, like later on Sunday and into Monday. So it doesn't stop at the coast. It's going to bring its heavy rain a long distance inland eventually. Yeah. And, 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 and I've been prepping my garden for that the exact possibility <laughs> yeah. myself because I saw that possibility as well. But let me circle back and just reorient the listeners to who Dr. Greg Postel is. He has a master's and PhD in atmospheric sciences from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, one of the top programs in our field has a bachelor's degree in mathematics. Is that right? From Oklahoma University of Oklahoma. I've got a question mark in my notes. Yeah. So, well, there's me... a lot of, the thing is, is I bounced around in school because I wanted to sample my undergraduate uh, career. Yes, I did go to OU for a year. I went to a small private college in Maine for a couple of years. I did my first year of graduate school at the University of Illinois. So I've been all over the place, Marshall. So yeah, I got my BS in mathematics. Yeah, so not the, the nice weather journeyman, as they say in school. Right. Um, tropical weather expert at the Washington Post Capital Weather Gang, on-camera yep. meteorologist at one point in Lawrence, Kansas, worked in the weather derivatives sector where he helped direct weather risk management operations. And like all good meteorologists, he used to chase tornadoes and hurricanes. And if you watch the television iteration of Weather Geeks, you might recognize his voice from the Geek of the Week segment on TV as well. People always ask, who was doing that? It was Dr. Greg <laughs> Postel, if you didn't know. So, I mean, we've talked before, Greg, about tropical cyclones. 
Uh, but this is actually my first full interview where we've kind of really poked into sort of what some of your expertise is in your own work. So tell us a little bit about what some of your graduate work was and kind of what 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 you did for your own dissertation and graduate work. Yeah, so my dissertation uh, kind of focused on the interface between weather systems in the tropics and the mid-latitudes and how they interact with one another. It wasn't specifically focused on tropical cyclones, hurricanes. Um, it wasn't until I did my postdoc there where I was um, basically focusing on African easterly waves and their transition into hurricanes or tropical cyclones. And that really kind of opened up the door for me to try to really understand uh, at longer lead times how tropical cyclogenesis can be viewed. So. Um, it was it was a really valuable experience, and I was planning on doing this postdoc for three years after writing a proposal and getting the funding secured and, and trying to build a program at UW Madison. And after about a year, uh, the weather derivatives industry kept uh, knocking on my door, and I had to take that career turn. So yes, uh, can you can you for, brief can you briefly because is the weather derivative is that the Enron folks and all of that that people might remember because I remember some of that heyday myself I get I've got a got a few calls from the headhunters myself about that derivatives area kinda right it, it was weather risk management and so I sort of helped develop a company uh, in the Kansas City area where we looked at the the intersection between the economy and weather and tried to figure out using our understanding of science and weather predictability and building our own models of um, sort of medium range weather, how to best manage the risk that the economy assumes, you know, given certain weather outcomes. So it was a fascinating journey for me for about a decade there, um, but it, it kind of redirected me because I was really going down this tropical path with this postdoc. And I was like, okay, we're gonna really figure out how these easterly waves, uh, some of them develop into tropical cyclones and some of them don't. Um, and then, you know, I just couldn't pass up this other opportunity. That was really once in a lifetime. And speaking of easterly waves, because I want to circle back now, I wanted to give the, the listeners some context on uh, the uh, Dr. Postel's background, because you see him on the Weather Channel and you hear him on Weather Geeks in various places just to sort of establish his, he's got a really nice breadth of expertise in our field. And so uh, and I know the Weather Channel really is, you know, fortunate to have him as a part of their expert staff. Speaking of African easterly waves, you know, I wrote an article in Forbes yesterday, talk, I mean, I'm sorry, on Monday, uh, we're, we're taping this on Wednesday, and I was talking about we're watching three areas at that time. Uh, one was this area that we'll talk a little bit more about down in the Bay of Campeche. I guess there was tropical storm bill that's now a post-tropical system, I believe. But there was an interesting little easterly wave, African easterly wave that I saw that was coming off Africa. I think it's kind of fizzled now. Uh, but is it unusual to have have such a vigorous Af African easterly wave? Because I know some of our Cape Verde season storms really are bred in, with those waves. How unusual is it for this time of year? It's a little early, and usually the uh, that sort of season, the easterly wave season, picks up uh, later in August and September, and continue beyond that. You know, I get the question all the time from friends and colleagues, just to clarify. You know, these are not waves in the ocean; these are sort of ripples in the atmosphere, right? In the noticeable in the wind and pressure fields, and so when they, like clockwork, move from Africa over the tropical Atlantic, sometimes they carry with them the conditions for future development, which is one of the reasons why we monitor them quickly. You know, a lot of them don't ever do anything. They kind of move across the ocean 
as uh, you know, little cloud clusters and then kind of disappear in our sort of uh, in our view. But some of them are good at making hurricanes, which is why we need to pay close attention to them. But the one you mentioned uh, that was, I guess, highlighted by NHC the last couple of days doesn't appear to be a particularly viable candidate. Yeah, and I and one of the things that I mentioned in my Forbes piece, in addition to just later, probably now uh, moving into some unfavorable shear environment. I mean, there there's actually some dust out there too. I, I noticed uh, some African <laughs> dust already starting to make its way across. I, I was even wondering if that was or I mean, I mean, I think people don't maybe some people don't realize that these dust plumes from the Sahel are fairly common. I mean, I think they've gotten a lot of press and 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 social media discussion over the last couple of years, particularly as everyone was sitting home during COVID, but they've, they've been around. I mean, you know, talk to us a little bit about the implications for dust and just tropical development in general. Well, I'm not really an expert on uh, Saharan airliners. One of my colleagues in Madison, Jason Dunyan, was um, kind of a leader in sort of helping us understand uh, how these dusty outbreaks, um, I guess, control or affect tropical development. But you know, what I've sort of grown to learn, and one of the benefits of being in school for so long and being in science, you get to be around great minds and learn so much. And that's part of the whole community. So um, I've learned a lot from being around experts, a lot of experts in my career. Same here. Um, Yeah, it's really amazing. But you know, these dust outbreaks are really associated with what are called, they're essentially elevated mixed layers when they move out over the water. There are these very deep um, boundary layers that develop over the Sahara. So you have an adiabatic lapse rate, sort of very steep lapse rate, temperature drops off very quickly from the ground aloft. And then when that sort of well-mixed layer moves out over the cooler waters over the Atlantic, it kind of glides upward, it gains altitude. And you end up with that dusty air aloft, not near the surface, but it's contained aloft. And the base of it is characterized by an inversion. In other words, a zone where the temperature increases very quickly. And that limits right there, a lot of cloud and convective potential when you have that inversion. So caps it. Like we get those elevated mixed layers coming off the Mexican plateau that sometimes corrupt, ruin, or uh, you know mitigate severe weather in the plains. This is the same kind of thing. You get this capping inversion over the, uh, the Atlantic with you know maybe I don't know how high up, 700 millibars, 850, whatever the inversion is, it stops convection. So they're often characterized by just dust and not a lot of cloud. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually right. And there, so they're really interesting little features that we have to monitor when we get into sort of the, the heart of the hurricane season. Right. When we come back, I want to kind of pick Dr. Postel's brain about how early on we saw this threat that we're facing here in the Gulf of Mexico in the model. So we'll, we'll tackle that when we come right back. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E 
Byte.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Greg Postel, a Weather Channel expert, knows a lot about meteorology, someone that I, you know, I learn a lot from when I, I watch him on, on air. And so really, ha- we've had him on Weather Geeks before, but this is really the first featured interview with Dr. Postel. So we're able to dig a little bit deeper than some of our, our past discussions. And one of the things you were talking about earlier was sort of mid-range or um, medium-range forecasting. Uh, and I, I recall that people started talking about this little what could become, I guess, Claudette. It's, it's still not clear whether it's going to get a name or not. It's still going to be a high-impact event, perhaps, from the rain standpoint, no matter whether it gets a name. And we can talk about that later. But do you think people are aware of the fact that we have the types of models that we can actually see um, sort of signs of these types of storms? And then what are your caveats and cautions about them? That's a great question or set of questions, I should say. Um, I don't know if the general population is aware that we can look, you know, beyond a few days or even beyond a week. Um, You certainly can't get that on your app. So you need to tune in. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So Uh, tune in to the Weather Channel, right? Shameless plug. Yeah, no. um, But we have to be clear about what we're sort of predicting and how we're predicting it. I mean, once you go beyond a few days, you've really got to change your target about what you're trying to forecast. Because um, the atmosphere, of course, gets very complicated. All the interactions among weather systems just get too too, um, complicated. I'll just say that. But... There is predictability in certain weather systems beyond a week, not necessarily your day-to-day weather or the kinds of things that move through, like a thunderstorm or a rain shower, but these much larger weather systems that move through, let's say, for example, in this case, the tropics, there is predictability in kind of assessing where they might be in the next one to two weeks. So you're not forecasting the genesis of a hurricane, the development of a hurricane specifically, you can't do that. Heck, we have a difficult time doing that 12 hours in advance. But what you can do is put all these tools together, understand where these larger weather systems may position themselves in the next six to 10, eight to 14 days and say, okay, this is going to increase the risk for tropical development and look at it probabilistically rather than, you know, specifically identifying a cloud cluster that's going to become the next named storm. We can't do that beyond very far, let's just say. But it's a much different approach. The farther out in time you go, you have to re- you have to tune your thinking and say, hey, look, I need to know where the atmosphere is going to open up the window. And then we'll start from there and then build beyond that. And I think that's a great point, because one of the things, Greg, you often see is people posting these long range <laughs> deterministic type forecasts right. you know, for social media clicks and likes and so forth. Um, what, what's your perspective on that? And, and, you know, is that dangerous from a messaging standpoint? Here, here you are, someone's fairly, you know, you know, you know, not fairly significantly competent in this field <laughs> on the Weather Channel telling people information. But then then they're seeing some post on their Facebook page that says, oh, yeah, there's a tornado. I mean, I'm sorry, a hurricane is going to hit New Orleans three weeks from now. Uh, so how, how do we balance the messaging? It's a messaging problem, but in the right hands, it's. Um, and with the right audience, it can be done. There's valuable information. You know, there's, there's been, a, I think, a, a 
movement to just reflexively disregard a forecast of a tropical cyclone, let's say beyond a few days or a week or 10 days. Someone says, oh, that's 10 days out. I'm don't even bother. Well, not necessarily because yes, the details could be completely off and very likely are, but there's information in the model that's telling you, well, the atmosphere may be ripe for some kind of formation there, which goes back to what I was saying earlier. The models are picking up on these predictable features, these larger scale things that are in play, and they're offering up one option. It's one of many at day 10, right? There's lots of things that can happen at day 10 differently than any particular run. That's why they run these ensemble uh, members and this ensemble system forecasting is so valuable. But yes, an individual posting, let's say on Twitter, of a 360 hour hurricane, uh, the messaging is, is, I don't think is particularly helpful unless it's surrounded by all kinds of context. And that can be very hard to do in the few characters that Twitter offers. Yeah, this is great information. We're talking with Dr. Greg Postel from the Weather Channel. We're talking about the early tropics and picking his brain on his expertise with medium range forecasting and so forth. One of the things that with this uh, storm this week that could develop by Father's Day and impact parts of the Gulf Coast. It, it's it's forming where we expect them to form at this time of year, early in the hurricane season, which is in the Western Caribbean, perhaps in the Gulf. From your perspective, what is it about that region this time of year that makes it the sort of prime breeding ground or origin point for tropical cyclones that may in, impact the U.S.? Well, there's a there's a weather system that develops typically in the early summer and late fall. You usually get a couple of these events a year and they're called Central American gyres. And they're big areas of low pressure kind of swirling around Central America. Now, when I say big, I mean the scale of thousands of kilometers. So, you know, maybe the size of the United States or something centered on Central America. Well, if you think about it, if you got that area of low pressure, and of course, some of that extending over water, that's what tropical development requires. It requires low pressure, right? Some spin and also some of the other ingredients like a moist atmosphere and, you know, some other factors, reduced wind shear. So that kind of weather system can kind of organize those ingredients and, and especially this time of year. And this, I don't know exactly if, if what we're seeing is a byproduct of that organization process by the Central American Gyre. It might be, I'm probably not the best person to ask on that one, but certainly there were bits and pieces of what's called vorticity that were beginning to accumulate in the forecast um, in this region, saw this long, long ago, that that might be a possibility. We're again, sort of going at it probabilistically, okay, we've got this likely, we have this likely, we have this likely, all these sort of ingredients that open up the window, as I like to say, for development in the Bay of Camp Beach. And that's one of the reasons why we see development this time of year in that location, getting back to your question, in part because we sometimes have these circulations that help um, harbor that kind of safety or development. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I would add to that, uh, the, certainly the waters are already warm enough in those oh, yeah. 
as well from sort of those thresholds that we need. And then as we progress through hurricane season, the storms move, we, we sort of see more activity in the Atlantic, Eastern Atlantic, Cape Verde and so forth. So I, I wanted to mention that because I, I, I think the casual listener, I think the weather geeks out there, true, true weather geeks that just yeah. call the weather the way we do probably know that. But I know mm-hmm. we have a range of listeners to this podcast. And so I always like to set some context. Now, meteorologist Sarah Dillingham, the outstanding producer of the Weather Geeks podcast, wanted me to ask you, excuse me, wanted me to ask you about the Madden-Julian oscillation, MJO. (laughs) So this, you know, in in meteorology and climate science, we have these alphabet soups that you hear us talk about all of the time, like the ENSO and the NAO and the PDO and AO. Well, there's one called the MJO as well. And Greg, can you just give the listeners a 101, a little bit on what the MJO is and more importantly, what its implications are for the tropics? MJO is a great story for me because it stands for the Madden-Julian Oscillation, excuse me, and it's one of the most dominant modes of variability in sort of the tropics. In other words, it accounts for a lot of the rain that we get and a lot of the clear skies that we get alternating periods, but it's a very big system. You think about it as the scale of an oceanic basin or more, or a couple of them, and it kind of moves around from west to east generally, and carries with it the uh, ingredients for formation. So, you know, when you get part of this, you can think of it as a wave, although, you know, it's got some power in the frequency and um, wave number spectrum that kind of conjure the notion of this wave-like phenomenon, but I'm not really sure it's the best way to be characterized as a wave. It's, it's more like a disturbance that's got parts to it that moves across the tropics and from time to time. Now we're talking, it's slowly moving, maybe only about 10 miles per hour or so. Uh, And it's big. So that means it takes a while for one part of it to move through. And it's period, I think is somewhere over a month, you know, 30 to 60 days, some even later than that. But when you have the rainy part of it or the, let's not necessarily rainy part of it, but the part of it that, is characterized by more clouds. It's characterized by higher relative humidities uh, at higher altitudes. It's characterized by reduced wind shear. It's, it's, you think about this, what it can bring to the table when you run down the check marks for the list of tropical development, it can bring with it those ingredients and set the stage for development to occur. That's why we keep track of it. And again, it's one of those systems that is probably predictable, reasonably so beyond 10 days even. So because it's so big in part, again, it's one of those bigger weather patterns that we look for that can open up the window. Do we see it in the models? I mean, what type of models yeah. detect it? I mean, is it is it in the GSF, GFS Euro model? Yeah. Or do we have to look out longer range? I mean, what? The global models do their best to try to predict it. And it's almost hard to almost detect exactly what it looks like we do our best to try to assess that, but yeah, you can sort of extract bits and pieces from the model. And then from that identify, okay, we're seeing this kind of weather pattern in the tropics and that's what we're going to call MJO and you can forecast it out. But let me step back for a second and go back to when I was first introduced to that. It goes back into the early 1990s. I remember as a graduate student in Madison, sitting at my computer, just looking at a satellite animation, and one of my uh, one of the, one of my colleagues, faculty member Greg Tripoli, walks in. 
one of my favorite scientists of all time, one of the brilliant minds. Shout out to come across. I agree with that. I, I love is, yeah. So if you're not familiar with him, he he was the pioneer in non-hydrostatic numerical modeling. And, you know, those weather forecasts that you see on your TV, those ones that produce the thunderstorms, you can pretty much thank him for getting that kind of information into the computer models that then go on your TV screen. This goes back 25 years or more, 30 years in some cases. Absolutely. One of the classic papers, State. classic papers, set of papers out there. So anyway, going back to so Madison and um. I'm sitting there and I'm wondering, okay, when are we going to get a hurricane? So this was like, I think, August of some year in the 19, early 1990s. And he walks in, he goes, oh, uh, in the next week, the MJO is going to roll around. We're going to get tropical development. <laughs> and I said, wait, what? What did you just say, MJ, what? <laughs> and so he explained it to me. This was going back so, but almost 30 years ago now. He explained it to me, he said, well, this is what it is. And this is what it can offer up. And it was at that moment that I realized, oh, Okay, I'm dealing with a brilliant mind, A, in Tripoli, and B, yeah, there's a lot here that we can explore. Um, and it's was I carried with that conversation a very strong interest in what it is, what it does, and how it can be useful in not just forecasting tropical meteorology, but also weather patterns where we live here in, in the mid-latitudes, in wintertime especially. I mean, you can really use it to help identify the probability of cold air outbreaks and things like that. So it's a very useful thing to keep track of. And that's how I got started with it long, long ago. Now, if you think the MJO discussion was an ultimate geek out on Weather Geeks, wait till you hear what I'm about to ask Dr. Postel next. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm geeking out. And this is why I love the podcast, because it just allows us to geek out. We call the podcast Weather Geeks for a reason. We like to dig a little bit deeper than your average weather podcast on some of these topics and really get into it. And so you just heard Dr. Postel talk about the MJO. Another feature that many of our listeners may not be familiar with are atmospheric Kelvin waves. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm having some nightmares back to some of my classes dropping <laughs> Krishnamurti and some others. But talk to us about what atmospheric Kelvin waves are and why are we talking about them within the context of weather? Well, they're another sort of characteristic mode of variability in the tropics. In other words, they're another piece of the weather puzzle in the tropics that um, routinely brings with it alternating periods of clouds and rain and clear skies kind of like the MJO, but much, much smaller and much more and much quicker. I mean, it moves at like 30 miles per hour. And instead of being the weather system like MJO, the size of a, an oceanic basin or half the globe, it's much smaller by a factor of five, I guess. I don't know. It's maybe the size of the United States or a little bit bigger. Um, but anyway, Kelvin, atmospheric Kelvin waves pop out in the basic dynamics uh, when you sort of look at the governing system of equations in the tropics. 
and they're one of the modes that pops out, um, meaning they're one of the patterns of, of weather that finds a home in the properties of the atmospheric flow in the tropics. And their Kelvin waves are also, like all the others we mentioned, very important to track because they can help create thunderstorms, help reduce the wind shear in certain parts of them, help moisten the atmosphere in certain parts of them, all going through this checklist and um, help bring with them or help initiate anyway, low level areas of spin. And they are also trackable in advance, perhaps a week, maybe more than that. Again, we're kind of going into those ranges where you have to look at it, not so much deterministically, you know, this is gonna be here and then this is gonna happen from there. Not so much like that, but more like, well, there's a pretty good probability that this is gonna be here and therefore we're looking at a heightened risk of development. So it too, the Kelvin wave is too um, very important to watch because it carries with it the toys that hurricanes like. And Marshall, maybe we should just sort of step back just for a second to talk about those elements that we've mentioned so far about those ingredients. You okay with Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yeah, let's let's go through sort of the environment. I, I, we've kind of loosely mentioned there during discussion, you know, favorable shear, certain uh, threshold of sea surface temperature and so forth. But let's just walk through the sort of idea of if you were in the lab and you were yeah. picking up the ideal conditions for a hurricane, what would that stew uh, consist of? Uh, a fairly tranquil atmosphere. Hurricanes don't like windy environments because right. that tends to tear apart the thunderstorms. That's the wind shear. So something where, where there's not a lot of change in the wind speed a lot. Now, you know, I suppose it could be windy a lot, but then it better be windy at the ground. So there's no net difference between what's happening below and up top. It's the shear that's the problem. So you kind of want an environment that's, I don't know, relatively benign in that way. The other thing is you talked about is, is the sea surface temperature, right? Because Tropical cyclones, by definition, require lots of thunderstorms with them. And um, you're going to get a lot more of them the warmer the water is, right? Over cool water, it's going to be harder to do based on the stability properties in the atmosphere of the law. But you know, it doesn't have to be, what is it, uh, 26 degrees Celsius in order to uh, have uh, a hurricane. It can you can get hurricanes in tropical systems at slightly cooler waters, depending on the stability properties above. But yes, generally, warm water is better than cool. So, we got wind shear. We got water. Um, low level spin. We talk about that a lot, and you know, it's almost hur hurricanes in tropical systems don't form spontaneously out of nothing. They typically take what's there, uh, the development process takes whatever spin is there and then tightens it up. So this is maybe not the best analogy, but I just thought of it. It's like, imagine you're sitting on your chair in your office and you're not doing anything. You're moving in. you got your arms extended outward. You bring them in, right? You're not going to do anything. The, the motion doesn't, you're not going to start motion by doing, by constricting your body. But if you're spinning and you bring your arms in, then you spin faster. So you need that pre-existing motion. It's not the best analogy I know, but you bring it, you need a pre-existing spin and then have the ability to tighten it up and then it can spin. So that's part of it. The other reason why you need spin 
is because in a cyclonic way at lower altitudes, you can trap the heat of contract or deformation radius and whatever thunderstorms build up and they try to heat the atmosphere, that heat can be contained and not disperse this gravity wave activity at higher altitudes. That's a lot of, I know, fancy talk, but those are reasons why we like to look for spin. Yeah, absolutely. And so- What was the other thing? There was one other thing. Oh, humidity, right? Humidity, the moisture, yeah. Very important to have a moist atmosphere aloft because if you have dry air aloft and then it starts raining inside of that dry air aloft, that air aloft cools, like when you step out of the shower, the water evaporates from your skin, it gets cold. You develop a cool interior, and then that sinks and then spills outward and ruins anything you're trying to spin up. You know, just the opposite. When you're trying to constrict things, you know, by bringing your arms in once you got some spin, the cold downdraft will try to reverse that completely and turn a spin into less of a spin. Yeah. So you don't want dry air a lot. That's one of the reasons why it's Bad. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think this that list that Greg just walked this through, there are these sort of stage setting backdrop forcing processes that he's talked about today, the MJO or atmospheric Kelvin waves, or even you may hear us talk about whether there's an ENSO, an El Nino or, an, or a La Nina. All of those things can essentially impact those sort of checklist ingredients that Dr. Postel just mentioned. And so that's that's why, for example, uh, the you know last year and perhaps this year have been projected as above normal hurricane seasons. Some of those bigger picture conditions seem to be in place to support development. Uh, it, if you get the sort of weather scale phenomena to line up in the, in the weather scale processes, I should say, to line up in the right way. So we, we do have to kind of close this out, Greg, but what would you say if you were going on to the Weather Channel, I imagine you will at some point in the next day or hours, uh, about this forecast for Thursday? What's sort of your final word on that? Well, I think if you live anywhere along the Texas coast through Louisiana, even areas farther to the east, uh, rainy time of it is probably coming your way. I mean, much more than your typical, you know, afternoon thunderstorms this time of year. There's a low pressure that's coming out of the Bay of Campeche. It's it's going to have some opportunity to strengthen and it, it very well be, may become a tropical storm. It's entirely possible. Um, and there's some possibility that it gets stronger, but it seems like that there's a less of a chance of it getting into that range of a hurricane than it is to uh, remain somewhat underneath that threshold. But it's again, the tropical, <laughs> the intensification, the forecast of intensity, much harder than the track. So yes. again, there's a lot of uncertainty here and a lot is gonna depend on what happens on very small scales inside of this thing that we can't quite, uh, get our handle on. So pay attention to the forecast is what I would do. It's probably not going to become a hurricane, but pay attention just in case. Yeah, because it really boils down to impacts. And one of the significant impacts I see from this system, whether it gets a name or not, is rainfall. So again, that's a great point. That's yeah. a really great point. Rainfall and impacts. Rainfall is going to be likely, very likely, the biggest one. Yeah. I can't do it like Dr. Postel, but it is time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weedie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Daniel Dix. Daniel is a supervising meteorologist in the Air Quality Unit for the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. In 2020, he presented his work on COVID-19's effect on the world's 
uh, air pollution, along with other small scale events that included pollution generated by Fourth of July fireworks. He's also no stranger to the Weather Channel as he was part of the Tornado Hunt team back in the 2000, 2000s, I should say. Daniel loves all kinds of interesting weather. So if you want to follow along with him, check him out on Twitter at DDWX. Hey, Daniel, if you know someone who would be a great geek of the week, check out our social media pages. Dr. Postel, thank you so much for joining us on this extended episode of Weather Geeks. Thank you very much, Dr. Shepard. And can I say geek of the week one last time? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, this is nostalgic. Hit it. A geek of the week. There you go. That should bring back some memories for those of you that watch the television show. And on that note, we'll end it. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for having me. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.